Streaming now on the KFAX app and the Odyssey app. Portions of our programming may be pre-recorded. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to... Uh, What's the word? I'm tweak. I'm trying to think. What is it? What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You 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 love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly, that's uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth challenges, uh, seemingly no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light. Uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sun. Sunlight, and the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar? A congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired. There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, the professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and uh, works as a, a church uh, advisor in many respects helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a you know a church a consultant or a fixer. But uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as full time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new 
uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another. Is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or <laughs> the very least the stick to it uh, of those called the lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor. And these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually until that uh, is changed, it usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in, in all fairness, uh Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will, but then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister sus and such to God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor's trying to get the lay of the land and so they're willing to come in and help out and then what? It turns into a suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make 
end up being made by powerful lay people. And they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, a, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is, uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Uh, maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a, a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with. But And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight, a look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, or what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary, and when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. And uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable. And so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care. But really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about 
was there is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again. In your book, you refer to them as members of the in the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't, at the end of the day, seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything, and then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or a miniature fiefdom. One of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary, but one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res- that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity According to our tradition, we will be open to significant change, and it kind of turned the tables on the you know the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. And you know, I don't wish to. I want to get in trouble here with listeners, and and seem to come off as if I I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a, a couple of basic uh, principles here? Um, certainly, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, disciple evangelism. I mean, that that's kind of the uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward-looking. I, I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, um, okay, and so what have you done for me lately as part of, of the way... <laughs> <laughs> the Lord himself might uh, might judge a church like that. Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back, just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. 
they had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound faith infused things in their past and so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition they were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years but when you look at what had been happening over the last century then that was a different kind of tradition and you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center and so it wasn't a matter of don't look back just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that, that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so, too, ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so uh, that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition, which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who were who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or a sarah or just something that's you know good for historical you know trivial pursuit. Then they end up with a with a maybe a, a temporary you know temporary life and and growth, but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp that what they've been bequeathed 
uh, uh, fr- from the past. And so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're, now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward and they wish to just singularly cling to the past and others are too rapid or in a rush to, to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward and there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean mean to you and your congregation. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in them because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this. uh, One of the churches that I I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, churches if they are, you know, out of duty, they're getting jobs, they're they're, they're, uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in. And, and they're not learning to evangelize. And so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet uh, or out to lunch. Um, they have the glad-handing thing and, and the, you know, shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But, but they're not teaching what Paul said about... Um, uh, the gift of hospitality hmm. and the gift of hospitality I think is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden you know for whatever reason he dies you know whatever reason the church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be the, a family as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their co-workers in most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not. They've not. They're not being taught hospitality. So, what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow! Some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Zenos, and my uh, youngest son is a is a. He's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. 
and it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this: the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and and the church is is losing market share. But the churches that survive. Uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger and because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, but I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real, proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they, they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago, and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas. And I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You are you getting a sense that the emphasis on and I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship? genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven uh, and, and various things, that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really... Knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. The churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on. 
and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts and teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there, there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. Uh, we are wired for intimacy, and our bodies react to it when, it, when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, our loved one, there is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is an author and journalist journalist Rob Mole. And, and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we, we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're, when we're close to our, uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then, I guess, of God. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when when researchers put uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when when that happens. And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this in this unique way. It's uh, different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond uh, fond memories of uh, of friendship, feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had and remembering special moments and and then they looked at those people remembering special moments with god and what that looked like in the brain and and they're actually really different things brains doing something different but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its, uh, its senses of compassion, sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. So 
as we as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So as you as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people. When you were writing this book, in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I I guess made aspects of of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa. Yeah. We were about six weeks after the birth of our child, and and Clarissa started having panic attacks. I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, this overpowering sense of uh, a sense of uh, that you're going to die. This sense of something is drastically wrong. Um, I need to. Uh, uh, you know, my, my, my life is unraveling, uh, my world is unraveling, and I'm going to die any minute. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a horrible thing to witness. And this was going on over and over and over again. And what we found as we, as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after, after birth to go through a post, postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so what, one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use, neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level. So she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And what I, what I, what the challenge for me is I'm writing this book and writing about the, the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to, and to love others was that here, the, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of, of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had, to, I had to find, I had to seek some answers around, well, how are we, what, what am I supposed to think about, especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about our bodies design when they go wrong. How am I supposed to think about God and suffering? And and these were these were pretty tough questions for a while. Digging into that, and I think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so. Uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself? Well, you know, you look at you look at scripture, and uh, especially at Job, and God doesn't really give Job a, a terrific answer when he when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh, God essentially answers, I'm God. <laughs> um, and and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh, even Jesus suffers. Uh, and not so much that, that uh, God gives us an answer or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but, but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so, as I looked, in, you know, in the in the physiology and the biology, what what is what are we supposed to? How do we make sense of this? One thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people. Uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience of panic attacks, and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist. 
uh, not knowing that this this woman was Christian, and she said, "Okay, your your path back to hell to health is going to be to help people." And she gave him a task every Monday. She she gave him a task of, uh, you know, go to the soup kitchen, uh, help someone across the street, do these very um, very mundane but very important actions of helping another person. And that was actually his route back to health. Uh, so our bodies are designed uh, to to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's, that was the answer for me, that uh, when, when humans were suffering alienation to, from God, he sent his son to die for us uh, in response. And, and when, when we are suffering and when we see others suffering, we're designed to respond and, and alleviate that, help alleviate that pain. We will find individuals that will, for example, during this time of year, uh, during the holidays, uh, suffer from one form or another of uh, depression that in more extreme forms can certainly lead to panic attacks similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, that just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else who's circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I, I'm, I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks. And it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to, to do unto others that oftentimes times be a form of worship as well. And in doing so, all of a sudden, the body has a way of, of healing itself, doesn't it? That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that you know mental health is uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do, uh, and in the same way, mental health. Um, you know, we are healthier as people when we are engaged, when we are concerned not for ourselves, uh, but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those those in our church communities, uh, the people at work. That's really where we find meaning and purpose, and then therefore a healthy life. Rob Mole, the book called "What Your Body Knows About God." How we're designed to connect, serve, and thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift. Also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Mole for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at RobMoleMOLL.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. So long.
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.